All right, we're going to be in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and I invite you to stand with, uh, stand with me. When prepping for this, I'm excited to hear what Jacob has to say today. Um, all right, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Every person is to be in subjugation to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have uh, no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for anything, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjugation, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, to tax whom taxes due, custom to who custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And I invite you to sit. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, yeah, you can pray for me. Uh, we started last week looking at Romans 13, and I preached the whole chapter. Um, and I primarily did that to give context. Uh, everyone uses Romans 13. Everyone. And one of the reasons why everyone uses Romans 13 is because it's, as I said last week, highly political. My question for you, today, my, my plea for you today is, is that you would pray for me as I walk through this passage again with you. Um, I think... Uh, if you spent time considering last week, you could walk away asking the question, how does a Christian respond to a government when it doesn't act as the servant of God? And how do we handle that response knowing that government not always is acting within the mindset of what, which God has given it? So today's aim is to consider that and uh, I hesitate, if we talked as elders, how long we should teach on this. And so we decided to do a 16-week series on Romans 13. No, um, no. No, I told the elders that I would try not to make more work for them um, than necessary. I, I hesitate in some ways, though, um, before I go in prayer to speak on what I'm about to speak. In politics, you can see it even here in our country. We have the two sides, and Within the two sides, you have even further sides, and they press against each other into whatever we would say into its extremes. My only hesitation even in going into this context and addressing what I think is necessary to address is that there will be parts of today's message where it will appeal to one perspective. And we tend to be, when it comes to politics, practice what I would say selective hearing, uh, grasp to what we like. And then I think that in the other sense, there will be a point where it will appeal to another position and we selectively choose how to respond to our situation. Um, if there's any attempt and plea that I put before you, you know me, my character, and my desire. Um, and I, I hope that you would uh, 
Consider how Romans 13 has been used historically. The horrors which have been used by this passage should cause us great fear. The abuse and the misuse of Romans 13 has devastated this world. Which is why I tried last week to give a clear description of what Paul is arguing for. God has established government for a purpose. And I described what that purpose was. He reminded the Christians that when you experience evil, don't exchange evil with evil. Vengeance belongs to the, belongs to the Lord. But as, in, as he goes on to say, but there is something to hope in the present time of how God exercises his wrath upon those who do evil. And so, and so, so to speak, to paraphrase what Paul has written in Romans 13, we had learned that God has, this is my working definition, Working means I can change it, right? God has established government as his servant and is the institution through which God exercises his wrath upon those who flaunt lawlessness in the present time. Government has given, or God has given to government, as we see in verse 4, the sword. It acts as the minister of God to you for who do good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. God established government as the means by which he, he fuels his wrath upon those in the present time who flaunt the standards of God. Vengeance is mine. This is God. And we can look at that vengeance and how he responds in, a, in, a, in an eschatological sense, in the future sense. But then Paul brings to mind also how God exercises that vengeance in the presence. That theology we have to understand. And my concern is, is that uh, we, understand, we don't understand that principle. Uh, just like Peter who taught the same thing. His concern for the churches is that they would not be practicing evil under the governments what God had submitted them under. 1 Peter 4, 15-16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But anyone who suffers as Christian is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in the same, in his name, in his name. Paul, like Peter, is placing the ideal standard of how Christians respond to government. And as we walked away last week, I know, how do Christians respond to a government that does not act as the servant of God? And that is where the work begins, does it not? So with that said, let's pray. Lord, I am grateful for the Christians historically who have been willing to do good and suffer. We recognize that uh, while your scripture is inerrant, we are not. So Lord, I pray as we consider these words and even our own present season, we, we do have concern for some of the policies in these lands. And Lord, I pray that as we go along as a people, as your people, in the midst of a people, Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful to you. 
you have called us to be your children, to be light to the world. Sometimes we exchange that light for zealotry. Lord, I pray that we be known for doing good, devoting ourselves to one another and loving our neighbor. And that light and the patient endurance which you have used all your people to do, watch it transform the world around us. There is much hope that we could change a nation, but that cannot take place unless you change our families, those in our neighborhood, in our schools. And we recognize that we've been placed in tri-cities. The situations that we face here are different than what we face, a Christian might face in China. And the situations that they face in China might be more severe than what we face here. Nonetheless, you've called all of your people to be light. The challenge is, is how do we respond to the government which you have established when they do not act as your servant of God? In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I said it last week. I know why Romans 13 can be difficult. It's contentious. It's political. Uh, And as I've done my studies, and I have read a lot, and I testify, family can testify that, Adam can testify that, Um, everyone uses Romans 13. Everyone. Not just the pastor, the politician, the Democrat, the Republican, the media, those in your family, co-workers, everyone uses Romans 13. And if that's true, people of God must know it so that they can practice discernment. That's my first point. If we don't know what Romans 13 is about, how do we practice discernment? If we don't know that God has established government as his servant and is the institution through whom which he exercises his wrath upon those who fought lawlessness, people have used it historically to mean entirely different things. Pastorally, when you come to a passage, you preach it within its context, you hope, but there are sometimes such profound interpretations that have taken sway over people's historically, you want to address the misuse of it which is my aim this morning. For it has been used in an entirely different way to emphasize that God has established government to be that which has absolute authority. For example, many have taught Romans 13 to be merely two verses. Consider with me. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If Romans thirteen was merely two verses you would have adequate information to hold and teach and promote that government has absolute authority. Read it again. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who ex- which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they have opposed 
And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. If Romans 13 was merely two verses, you have enough information to teach and promote that government has absolute authority. But we know there's 14 verses to Romans 13. J.C. O'Neill, commentator on Romans, writes correctly, These seven verses have caused more unhappiness and misery in the Christian East and West than any other seven verses in the New Testament by the license that have been given to tyrants. As they have been used to justify a host of horrendous abuses of individual human rights. You allow me. This is why when we come to God's Word, reading it rightly, gaining its truth is important. Because everybody uses Romans 13. Media, the pastor, the politician, the Democrat, the Republican, everyone uses it. That's why we must exercise discernment and be able to walk through it correctly. The truth matters. And the failure to read Romans 13 correctly has led and I will show historically to profound abuses. Now, I can already sense it. Some who like not to have government, I'm appealing to you. Right? Please. Consider what I have to say in full. For those of you who want us to be at practice submission, which we ought to because it says so, I will appeal to that as well. Vincent Lorenz, when it comes to all people using the scriptures. In his time period, he saw the heretic, and he asked this question. Does the heretic appeal to scripture? He writes, this is in his era, 450 AD. They do indeed with a vengeance. For you may see them scamper through every single book of holy scripture. Even though... the every single book of Holy Scripture, though the books, through the books of Moses and the books of the kings, the Psalms, the epistles, and the Gospels, and the prophets. They use all of them. And where, where do they use them? Well, they use them whether they're among their own people, among strangers, or in private, or in public, or in speaking, or in writing, or at convenial meetings, or in the streets. Hardly ever, hardly ever do they bring forward anything of their own which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. Now, the heretic, everyone uses the Scripture. Everyone uses Romans 13. And the profound things of misusing it have created disaster. Let me just step out outside the aspect of government. But remember how we are, why we are where we're at today. God said, don't eat of the tree. Remember what the serpent did? She goes to Eve. Has God said? He takes the words of God. He twists them in such a way to deceive her. You shall not eat from the tree of any tree of the garden. Has God said? You shall not eat from the tree. And when she participates in eating of the tree, when God asks her, Why did you eat of the tree? Verse chapter 3, verse 13. And then God, the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Understanding God's word rightly has important realities to it. 
And through the deception that the serpent uh, played upon Eve and Adam, to this day, sin has entered the world, the greatest disaster we face today. Remember when Jesus was wandering in the desert, the Holy Spirit brought brought him out, and it was Satan who came out to meet him. When he tempts Jesus, what does he use? The Scriptures. He distorts them and he twists them. Matthew 4, 6, just to give you one of the examples. He said to him, Satan, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. What Satan does here is he quotes it accurately in order to test or tempt Jesus, to contradict another passage of Scripture. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Remember Jesus' response, Man, you shall not test the Lord your God. So, I merely reference all that, because I think historically, it's not just God's people who try to read this accurately, but Satan and his servants have used it to to tempt sincere followers of God from his truth so as to deceive them. Now, I'm not saying that that's what's happened in Romans 13 presently today, but I will say that's what's happened historically. The prime ministers of South Africa would quote Romans 13 regularly to establish their racist apartheid policies. God's established us. We have the right to establish laws. And so we have the right to establish the apartheid policies. And called and quoted Romans 13 to compel sincere Christians towards compliancy. And many compelled and complied to do so by reading of verses 1 and 2. The impact of the apartheid policies still to this day have impacted those in South Africa. Getting God's word right matters. And understanding its context is helpful. It's easy to look back in past history and to find it where it's broken down, but Germany, I often wonder if I was a pastor in Germany, would I I have responded with the thousands of pastors who used Romans 13 to support Hitler's regime. It's easy to go back and look and and judge from our distance. But they would preach regularly Romans 13 to justify his seizure of power and his brutal policies. One congregant, he writes, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. Romans 13 preached him. And what they did is they said, Christians, you can demonstrate your love for God by your allegiance and devotion to the state. It's quite clever. Why? Every person is being subjected to the government authorities. God's put them there. He's raised up Hitler. So if you resist this authority, 
who opposed the very ordinance of God and condemnation. Man, that'll preach. If we don't have... And I, I would say that the preachers were sincere. We heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews. We try to distance ourselves from it because what could we do? The railroad track ran behind our small church. This is crazy. Each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle in the distance. And then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sounds of those wheels because we knew we could hear the cries of the Jews en route to the death camps. Like, the abuse of Romans 13, like, I just want you to feel a little bit of it. So often it's been used to say, don't think, comply. And Christians historically, from what I've gathered, have had to read Romans 13 and have learned from it the limits of government. They're acting like to be acting as the servant of God. And historically, it has been so twisted to mean something else. Could you imagine the train going behind our church? Look at how they responded. Now, it's easy, like I said, to look back and judge them. This is called deception. Their screams tormented us. So when he knew the tra- time, we knew the time the train was coming. And when we heard the whistle blow, we began to sing hymns. So that by the time the train could pass our church, we would sing all the louder. If we heard the screams, we would sing louder so we would not hear them no more. Getting these things right, God's word, the twisting of God's word is important to understand its purpose matters. And I think the commentator is right. Historically, the regimes that have been used through Romans 13 have created millions and millions of deaths to prop up evil. And we can look back historically down the tunnel of time, but even in this own nation, Governments, state rulers, senators, Jim Crow laws. Preachers preach Romans 13. It's such a foreign concept to me that you would separate a colored person from a white person because they couldn't drink from the same fountain or use the same restroom. But many Christians comply. Why? Romans 13, 1, 2. That's all there is. And so they did not oppose. Not all. Many did. Praise God. That there are, God is able to sanctify His church so as to sanctify the community around them. Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of, exists because 
Our forefathers wanted slaves and used Romans 13 for validation. Praise God, that does not exist anymore. It's so easy to look down the back of the tunnel time and judge them. But I only say all of it. Romans 13, getting it right, matters. God's word is indeed inerrant. The way that his people or people use it have not been inerrant. It at times has been downright evil. So we got to understand, this is why my first point, exercising discernment in the present times or even historically. In my own lifetime and even in recent times, I have seen our politicians use Romans 13 in the same way that Hitler would encourage his pastors to do it or under the apartheid to do it. And just because, like every time a new president's going to go up for a position to, or a governor, he quotes a section of Scripture and we all get excited. He's a Christian, right? Yeah. Everyone uses Romans 13. Everyone uses the Scriptures. That's my point. And so understanding its context, God has established government as His servant, is the institution, and it is His institution through whom God exercises His wrath upon those who flaunt lawlessness at the present time. God has not established government to flaunt or create more evils. I read Romans 13 in this way. It is not a passage which gives government license to do whatever it wants. Paul is assuming, he presupposes that the government is functioning as God intended. They're the servant of God. Do good and you won't fear them. But if you do evil, if you commit evil, like murder, adultery, stealing, covetousness, the flauntful standards of God, God has given to them the right to bear the sword as exercising His wrath in the present times. So that becomes the lens by which we understand. And so recognizing that everybody uses Romans 13, I haven't answered the question. Um, I'm merely just shown that people misuse it. And, and, and to say, to be fair, Christians have misused it, right? Like, if you know me, when I go to study a passage, one of the, my, my background is in historical theology, right? So what's that mean? It means when I read the text, am I the only guy in an all t- of all church history who reads it this way? Because I don't want to be the guy that comes up with a new reading, <laughs> We've got to test ourselves with the saints that God has historically spoken to by the Spirit because God, in His Word, is inerrant and He teaches Christians how to respond. What I love about the pastors, like the confessing church, those in the apartheid, and even those under Jim Crow laws or even in our present time, I, I've asked, like, Lord, how did they understand the deception? I've been convinced with this response is they knew his word and his truth and were convicted by it. And they were able to fine-tune what was being done and respond rightly to it. So then, 
with that all said, how do we respond? I think that's like where the rubber hits the road. How do you respond to a government when it does not act as the minister of God? I think there's one. God has been so gracious to give us a text in Scripture that shows us. And it's often neglected. But it's the book of Daniel. And if you would, I just would like, if I have time, I wanted to do two, but I'm probably going to do one. But just to show that it's not just this generation or in our present generation that where governments have asked for absolute authority and demands upon God's people. But Daniel and his friends had to learn to walk within a government that did not believe like them, didn't eat like them, didn't worship like them, didn't rule like Israel had been told to rule like the Lord had told them and have to walk with exercising discernment. One of the popular passages, I could go through several of the occurrences. I mean, at one point, Daniel made it up in his mind he was not going to eat Babylonian food. And God honored him that. He responded according to his conscience, and the Lord was with him. The one that I want to talk about, I think it's helpful, is the fiery furnace. And you're familiar with it. Just before the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar needed help with a dream. Daniel interprets the dream. Says, oh, well, yeah, you dreamed about a statue with four different layers of uh, metals on it. The top being the head was gold. Each, each layer of metal demonstrates a different kingdom to come. Nebuchadnezzar hears the dream. And hearing that it was made up of four different Metals thought, well, why don't I just make a, a statue all one metal? And he made it gold, which represented himself. And he did. Built this towering 90-foot golden image of himself. If you have your Bibles, you turn to Daniel. And being the most powerful man in all the world, I'm going to read from Daniel 3. Like, Daniel and his friends have nowhere to go. Like, we have Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar is here, right? Pharaoh was pretty good. Nebuchadnezzar is in a totally different realm. He is the king. In fact, he's so prominent. When he calls his governor and authorities to come to his statue, they represent the nations. Pharaoh was a king of a nation. Nebuchadnezzar is a king of nations, and he puts the statue up, and often we read this context as if in, it's a situation of worship, which it is, indeed it is, it's a situation of worship. But more than that, it was a situation that Nebuchadnezzar set up to demand from his rulers, his governors, his police department, from those who oversaw the money, his judges, his magistrates, all his counselors, the governors, the princes, he, he brought them all to demonstrate one thing, complete allegiance. Complete and utter allegiance. See the scenario unfold. Verse 3. Look who he invited. Then the satraps and the prefects, he built this thing. And the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, it's like you're 
police department, those who are exercising, making sure that people follow the laws. All the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The situation is, it's got to be, we know why we're here. It's one thing to be accomplished, and the herald came forward. Look at verse 4. And the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every tongue, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Yeah, this is an act of show your absolute allegiance. This is going to put the Jews in a very difficult position. Right? Because, and let me not say just Jews, but the people of God would read this and say, no, God has our complete allegiance. And Nebuchadnezzar has set himself against God by demanding that. Acting as the servant of God, rather, but now he's acting as a different servant. Look at verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Furnaces are quite motivating. Um, And Nebuchadnezzar, as we will go on to see, is quite committed to demonstrate what he expects from his people. Well, you know the story. Daniel's friends are not going to give this total allegiance. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to sacrifice his own men who carry these Jews into the furnace in which they themselves die. Furnaces are quite motivating. So are your jobs. When you read God's Word, it's written for every season. As I've read Romans 13, and I'm considering the present season, I am growing more and more concerned God has made man so that they would work. And let me give it specific, just so that we have a context here of what my concern is. Um, I'm concerned for our teachers and our principals. I pray for you. I pray for you that God would give you wisdom. Just in recent years, like our state has become infatuated with sexual and gender identity. Um, As if it's not determined by God, but to the individual. I I have to have these conversations now with my kids. At first I was like, should I talk about this? But the reality is, yeah. Our government is not acting as the servant of God in these things. Um, As the people of God, We know, let me take a sidetrack here. We know that God has crafted every individual within the womb. He has given them their sex or their gender. Whether they're going to be male or female. 
Yet this state has determined or it has committed to the deception by playing upon the hearts of children to determine, did God really make you this way? And there's a forked tongue in it. And it demeans the individual from perceiving that God made me who I am and exchanging it for I get to determine who I am, did God really say. And today, teachers and principals and school volunteers are now expected to give hearty approval to those who align with this new identity. So I pray for you. How do you respond to a government when its policies are not the servant of God? We know, as Christians, that God loves all people. Sometimes as Christians, as we understand these wicked policies, then those, as we express them as being wicked, it is assumed that we don't love all people. That's not true. And I know that Christians have used and responded against these policies in a form of zealotry. That's why I ask for you as teachers is to have compassion and respond and, and, and our children as they watch within the classroom the new convert being placed in front of the class and being asked to give hearty approval to such things. What will your children do? What, will you, what are you teaching them? when it comes to these things. Not so as to respond to reject the person, but to show compassion to the person. God made you the way you are, and he loves you. And when the music plays, like, like what our government has done, you like your job? When the music plays, respond with hearty approval or else. Furnaces are quite compelling. And so, as our government has learned, even our jobs. I mentioned this earlier, the Jim Crow laws. The music played then. The music played. And Christians complied. And the light which they were supposed to show to the world now, it's, I don't want to sit on a high horse and condemn. My only concern is, would I do the same thing in the present? Knowing what is evil, do likewise. Romans 13 is political. It's contentious. And as the people of God, we say, no, that's wrong. You're not acting as the servant of God, but rather now are walking according to a new servant. Christians historically would say, you look more like Revelation 13 than Romans 13. You look like the demonic beast who commits blasphemes. I mentioned the Jim Crow laws, like racism is evil. And even, even as I say the word now, I imagine there's a tensing up. Because nobody wants to be found as a racist or compliant to racism. I think these are great things. But 
But the church must exercise discernment. Why is racism wrong? Why? We can point to all sorts of different things as the world might do, but the church must exercise discernment knowing why. It's a hatred of God. At the heart of a racist is a hatred for God who acts with his, within his perfect will. He looks at God who makes red, yellow, black, and white, and brown and despises the God who would do such things. That's why it's wrong. That every person bears the image of God and because they bear the image of a God, they have dignity and worth and value. Now you might think for just a moment that I've gone off track Maybe, from Romans 13 and Daniel 3. No. Let me just show you the deception. We understand why racism is evil. No one comes into this world determining the color of their skin. Right? In fact, that authority, as we know, rests in God, who is the author of our biology, and the creator of the nations. I didn't even get to pick my name. Which demonstrates another layer of authority. And when God's people realize this, God's people can affirm God's design, and they honor God and give humanity value. God made you black. God made you white. God made you brown. God loves you. It raises up one's worth. No one ever within the history of humanity, except for Christ, has determined their gender. Just like their color. And it's evil. When a fourth grader is being encouraged to go against that which God has called them to be, made them. And when the music plays, teachers, principals, volunteers in schools, students, will you give hearty approval to such thing? Man, we need wisdom. We absolutely need wisdom how to respond to those moments. Because I do think that we ought to love. And I agree that many times the way that we respond to such situations is exchanging a love for a dismissal, an arrogant attitude. Teach these things to your kids how to respond. Because Christians who know the truth have been called not to use the truth as a weapon, but as a light. The herald gets up. Show your complete allegiance. And when the music plays, you know what to do. Look at verse 7. Therefore at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music. The herald could have quoted Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down. Everyone. 
and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Historically, do you know why it's been so hard for Christians to respond rightly in the situation they faced? Jim Crow law, slavery, Nazi Germany, the apartheid, you're in the minority. Feels like you're alone. Three guys. Look at verse 15. I don't have time to go through the whole thing. I'll keep you here forever. We have a meeting after this. Now, it's funny, after music was played, like these three men, godly men, <laughs> they didn't bow. And so they get turned in. And there they are standing before their king. Now, if you're ready, I'm going to give you another chance. At the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, I made very well. Show me your allegiance, complete, utter allegiance. And look at his arrogance. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of a blazing fire. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? What made Nebuchadnezzar's, what was the failure in Nebuchadnezzar's rule? He believed he was God. Teach these things to your children. How do God's people respond to a government that is not acting as the servant of God? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, you're going to find that their words aren't rude. They're firm. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Demonstrating whom they have complete allegiance to. Verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Daniel's friends are able to respond the way they do because they know what is good. It is good to worship God alone and only God. And so then the hour of tempting, even though everybody else is doing it, they stand their ground. That's what the church needs. Like sometimes facing the situations that we're facing with, we ought to know what's good before it comes. And sometimes we're learning about the good as we go through it. But the reality is, is that you're able to weather the tests of life, to bear light, because you know what's right and wrong. And we become a people historically in this country who do not read our Bibles, nor gather around it to consider its plea. That's being too critical. But we, we at times do. And so that when the music plays, we don't know how to respond. Or how to respond with the right attitude. 
what's cool about Daniel, I think I've appealed probably to this side a lot, right? What, give me time here, because I have a little bit. What I like about Daniel and his friends, after they come out of the furnace, you know what their attitude was towards Nebuchadnezzar? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is trying to kill him. You know what they did? They served him. They served Nebuchadnezzar, the one who tried to kill him. Kill them. What incredible attitude. I used to read Romans 13 or the scriptures thinking that Christians or God's people are not supposed to have like this relationship with the world around them as it relates to government and politics. Like, we'll do our thing, you do your thing. That's just not simply the truth or the case. Our governments, historically, have not acted always as the servant of God. Yet, what I have learned is that that did not mean that they stopped serving the government. As it related to what was not right, they stood firm. Correcting, pleading, using their voice to call Alignment to God's standard, but also at the same time serving. One theologian trying to describe the response. Christians have always been the people who are against the government and always for the government. And I love that. Because the moment, yeah, we don't always agree with Governor Inslee, right? I think that's a, but some of his policies are evil. In this state, I mentioned one. But the way we respond to those situations is a plea and a, compo- and a desire to see them be aligned rightly back to God. And we are the first individuals to reconcile them back when they have abandoned the standard of God. This is what's so powerful about the church. You may have heard the name Karl Barth. He saw the situation that was unfolding in his era in Germany. He's forced to flee out of his country as he speaks truth. He's the first one to go back and plea and reconcile the people back to the government. He understands that God establishes government. And that that doesn't mean that Christians don't have anything to say. Other theologians say, Just like the body has a soul, so is the church to the place that God has placed them in, the world. To the world, that's kind of an arrogant position. But as the people of God, we have learned the standard of God and we know what is good and right. We hope so. What I love about Nebuchadnezzar, I have to, here at some point, I is Nebuchadnezzar did not fear God, but it was through God's people and with God's people, God reached Nebuchadnezzar. His last words are recorded in Daniel go as this. I'm not going to read all, uh, not all of them are going to be on the slide. Nebuchadnezzar says this His dominion, referring to God is an everlasting dominion. 
And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand. And so to say to him, what have you done? What does Nebuchadnezzar come to learn? God is absolute. And nobody can say to God, use your hand this way or motivate him to do otherwise. Why? Because God's absolute. Last words of him recorded in Daniel is this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. That's crazy, my friends. For all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Daniel, I would encourage you to read Daniel. How do God's people respond to a, a government that does not act as the servant of God? And when you consider Daniel, I think you get wisdom of how to live in the present era. That's why it's been given to us. And as a result of that, they lived as a people always for Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar didn't act as a servant of God, they acted from, their, from Nebuchadnezzar's perception against him. And so I asked, when we went to Romans 13, the way that I chose to go through it is to show us, this is our point three, our convictional response, to show us what is the standard that God has set up for government. God has established government so that those who flaunt his lawlessness um, will experience his wrath through the institution of government. Church, don't be found participating in doing evil. That's the point. What do I want to conclude with this? I got the table in front of us. <laughs> we should be servants of our governor. At the same time, like Romans 12, 10. We know what God has called us to do, which is good. Be devoted to one another. That's the standard. And that same word is used for government. You might have missed it in the reading. Romans 13, 6. Paul encourages us to pay our taxes. For rulers are servants of God devoting themselves to such things. Government exists to devote themselves to confronting those who flaunt the standards of God. They're supposed to be devoted to this. And so let us support like, and praise our government when they do, do good. Like, Did you hear, it was just a couple weeks ago, Franklin County voted unanimously to let the Esther house be built. Y'all should be writing them. You serve God when you protect women who are caught up in sex slavery. You do good. I wonder how many times they get a letter like that. Like if Christians are only known as the rebel, we, get, we lose the voice to correct them. And I think we should be a people 
which can recognize that, yes, while we don't like what a lot is happening in our schools, our schools still let Christian organizations be ran during or after school. You honor God for letting those things take place. Our kids need them. Be encouraged by like-minded peers how to love God and serve Him and their fellow students and teachers. These are good things. Like, some of us are like, and some of us are like, we can help. I think when you come to a passage like this is where are you at, right? And we ought to remind our government that they do do good things. And when they do good things, speak well of them. At the same time, being willing to go against when they don't act as the servant of God. That's how I would pastor you and my children in the current season. Always before and always against. That allows me to serve a Democrat. Allows me to serve a Republican. Allows me to serve an Independent. Allows me to serve whomever God might appoint. Isaiah, the table's before us. We long for another day. And Isaiah promises, and this is what I would ask you to consider, all those things that I've said, but this is what we have to hope. Isaiah 9, 6-7. A child will be born to us, and we know who that child is. A son will be given to us, and the governor will rest on his shoulders. Oh, praise the day when that will take place. No one will have to tell the government, this is the standard of God. They will know it, and they will rest on his shoulders. I long for those days. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Praise God. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it, justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We wait, because he promised these things, that upon his return, these things would be accomplished. And so I think there's enough to consider this morning. Are you the individual that has responded rightly concerning God's word, exercising discernment? And do you hope for what lies ahead? As I ask the ushers to come and hand it out, we'll take it together as we consider these things. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you give us and those who recognize that you have been given us a gift in Christ Jesus. We do need discernment. Lord, we have prayed often. We want wisdom. We do not want to be viewed as the enemy of the state. For you established them. And because you have established them, you have called your church, which is the servant of God also. Not only to serve one another, but the society around us, including our governors and presidents and kings, whatever they might be. Lord, let us be faithful in the season that you have appointed us. You determined at the appropriate time when we would be here. Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to be faithful in that season. And thank you for the day in which all these things will be made perfect at the point of your return, in which Christ will rule justice and no more horrendous crimes will ever be publicly supported or promoted. And righteousness will be the reputation of our King. 
In Jesus' name, amen.